Running Light Ministry Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org. Okay, welcome to the Running Light Ministry Podcast, the Better Pleasure Podcast. I'm Bo. I'm Peter. And we are going to go into part four of the pastor's paradigm. And we'll see how far we get. And so we start off with the lesson of the rich young ruler. So that's where we're picking up is this is a slide um, that basically goes over the, the narrative of the rich young ruler. So you want to give people just a quick overview of that? Right. So uh, this is kind of in the middle of Jesus's earthly ministry, and he's starting to make some waves inside of the religious elite. So a lot of the Pharisees don't want anything to do with him. Some of them are intrigued, but uh, are keeping it more on the down low. The story of the rich young ruler is really interesting because you have a guy who's obviously a leader. Uh, he may have been in the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like a political slash religious organization of leadership back in the day. We're not really sure, but he was obviously very wealthy and he obviously had a, a very important position in Israel at the time. He comes to Jesus in broad daylight, which is right off the bat pretty amazing. And he asks him uh, what good thing must he do in order to inherit eternal life. So he recognizes that there's something missing in the law, in his legalistic kind of adherence to the law that is not getting him to heaven, that's not connecting him with God. And he doesn't know what he's lacking, but he believes Jesus might be able to answer this question. So he asks him that question. Jesus's response is, well, you know, you know the law. And he says, you shall not covet. You shall not commit adultery. You shall, uh, you know, you shouldn't kill. And the rich young ruler responds and says, I've done all these things since my youth. And Jesus says, well, one thing you lack, sell all of your goods, give them to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And the ruler leaves saying that he was very dejected or sad when he was leaving because he had many great possessions. So uh, there's a couple ways to read this story. And the reason why we put it in our slideshow is because there's kind of the more uh, culturally popular narrative. And that is that what this story is supposed to represent is more of the danger of riches or wealth. And that's actually how his disciples interpret the story. So they see this instance and they ask Jesus, wow, you know, like who could be saved? And Jesus says, well, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit eternal life. And they say, man, like, well, then no one could be saved. And Jesus says, well, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So they, even the disciples missed the importance of this lesson. And then they aggrandize themselves and say, well, Lord, we've left everything. You know, we followed <laughs> you. And Jesus has to respond and say, hey, you know, anyone who comes and follows me, they'll have uh, a thousandfold in this life. And in the next life, they'll have eternal more. But their takeaway was that what constituted their righteousness was their capacity to leave all and to follow God. And what the rich young ruler lacked was his will or his power to be able to leave everything and follow Jesus. The problem with that moral, uh, especially Christians who teach that way, is that if that's the moral that you take away from this lesson, is that means that what Jesus is essentially telling us is that you can inherit eternal life through good deeds. That would be the lesson we would take away. Uh, the other way to look at it, which is not usually taught from the pulpit, 
is that what Jesus is getting at is that with man, no one can inherit eternal life. That's what he meant when he said that to his disciples. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit eternal life. From their perspective, rich people were the best of the best. So what Jesus is saying is that men can't make it into heaven. <laughs> That's That was the lesson. Men can't make it into heaven. Nothing that you do is ever going to help you inherit eternal life. There is no level of righteousness that's going to help you make it. But why he did that to the rich young ruler is he was trying to show him you haven't kept the commandments. You think you have because your culture has taught you that by merely physical adherence to these commandments, you can eternal inherit eternal life. But what Jesus was showing him is there's something wrong with your heart. Obviously, there's something wrong with your heart because you're not willing to put God first in literal sense and give everything you have in order to follow him. So therefore, there is some sort of a greed. The rich young ruler, if he would have responded and said, Lord, I can't do this. My wealth is too important to me. I can't give it up to follow you. Jesus would have responded right on. You know, like now you're starting to get it. You need a savior. You are a sinner. You haven't kept the commandments since your youth and you need to be forgiven. So uh, it's a really interesting story. And again, one that I really feel as though many pastors teach from that first perspective of, well, if he would have sold everything he had, and that's what we need to learn. We got to put God Give first. Give it all up. Give it all to God <laughs> and everything will be great. No, the lesson is you can't make it. There's something in your flesh that just can't give God the worship and the adoration that he is due. And so you need forgiveness and you need salvation through Jesus. Yeah. So we asked the question, what in this culture, what in his culture made the rich young ruler believe that he could keep the commands of God? Hmm. So there was something in that guy's culture that thought that, oh man, I'm doing pretty darn good. Right. You know, and we try to, to drive this point home um, about the rich young ruler's folly and how his culture played a part in his life and the way he responds to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so understanding the rich young ruler's folly helps us understand how to interpret the Bible. So, and one of the things we're trying to get home, kind of drive home, right, is that idea of, is that the rich young ruler saw the Bible and he saw it from this perspective of which uh, that said, oh, I can do it. Right. And I, I am doing it. Right. And <clears throat> which is really interesting. Right. It's a culture. There's got to be a culture yeah. that kind of says like, hey, we're doing awesome. Right. Or we do really good. And that's what we have to watch out for as leaders. Yeah. Is this kind of culture that says like, man, there's like there's people that sin out there. Right. But then there's us. Right. That are really, you know, we're propped up. Right. We're looked at as uh, people that have positions of power and authority. Mm. And man, I must really be following the Lord, right. you know? Right. And, and so there is a culture that creates, yeah. you know, the rich young ruler. And it's funny because the, the person who helped me understand this really well was Pascal. Mm-hmm. And he has that famous quote that you always say, mm-hmm. every number in the presence of infinity is annihilated. Yeah. So the idea, you know, Blaise Pascal being a philosopher and a mathematician, he was talking about God's kind of infinite quality of righteousness. And essentially what he's getting at is he's saying, like, no matter how righteous you get, in comparison to infinite righteousness, you're obliterated. So (laughs) using like 
uh, just numerical terms. Like, let's say every righteous deed that you do is worth like 10 points or something like that. And depending on how altruistic and good it is, like it could be worth more points. Let's say you're just, you're Mother Teresa. You're an amazing person. You accumulate billions of points of righteousness throughout the course of your life. You're doing, you're doing great. Well, how many more points of righteousness do you have to achieve in order to be equal with God? We need an infinite more, right? <laughs> because that's yeah. how infinity works. Even if you got a billion, you still need infinity more righteousness in order to make it to God. Well, what? let's say you're a scumbag and you don't do anything for anybody except for yourself. And by the end of your life, you still have a score of a zero. You know, you just, you haven't accumulated a single point. Well, how much more righteousness does that guy need in order to make it to God? An infinite amount, right? So that's what Pascal is saying. Any number, no matter how big it is, right? It doesn't matter how large a number you're able to accumulate when it comes to your righteousness. When you put that number against infinity, it's just annihilated. It becomes nothing. You still need an infinite more amount of righteousness in order to make it to God. So was the rich young ruler more righteous than your average bear? Oh, yeah. I'm sure he was way more righteous than Jesus' disciples. I'm sure he was way more righteous than most people living today. However, no matter how righteous you are, when you're in the presence of infinite righteousness, it just doesn't matter. Right. So when we're talking about, we've been talking in the last uh, part about how we interpret uh, scripture, how we, what kind of pronouns we use. And we right. don't mean, I'm not talking about like the he, him, he, him <laughs> pronouns. She, she, I'm talking about <laughs> if you include yourself right. in, in the passages that you're talking about, or is it always like, you need to get right, right. you, you know, we're talking a little bit about that. And then, you know, understanding the rich young rulers folly and how, how that culture was where they propped up religious people right. and, and that we live in a day that props up religious people too in the church. Right. And that we easily could fall into the same uh, folly of the right. rich young ruler. And that's the problem. And that's what I think Pascal was getting at is that what human beings like to do is they like to view their righteousness in relation to the number zero. Right. So in other words, they're accumulating their righteousness and they're like, well, I got like a billion points. And that's, you know, against zero, that's doing pretty good. Right. But when you compare yourself to infinity, it humbles you. Right. Now, there's a there's a reason to compare yourself to zero. Right. It does help us because there is a difference between the person who's molesting his own kids and the father who may lose his temper every now and then and yell at his kids. Like we're not saying there's no difference. But before God both men would still need, which is radical for us to understand as human beings, the father who molests his own kids and the father who yells at his kids unjustly need the same amount of forgiveness before a holy God because every number is annihilated in the presence of infinity. So from a human justice perspective, obviously we have to distinguish between the two guys. Otherwise, we have to throw justice out the window and we won't be able to have a society that functions at any level. But... If we're going to understand God's economy, we have to understand and be humbled by the nature of infinite righteousness and come to God that way. So in churches, it's always going to happen, right? Just like in the Israeli culture, it's going to happen in the Christian culture where people are going to start comparing themselves to zero. They're going to start saying, I have this much righteousness. It seems to be more than that guy. Therefore, I'm doing pretty good. I, I am keeping the commandments. And we're not understanding that the the quality of righteousness that God is after 
no number could ever achieve that for you. No amount of righteousness that you keep is ever going to achieve infinite righteousness or infinite holiness. Mm. You need to come humbly before the throne of grace. Cool. So with all that said, the slide is just going over uh, these ideas that Peter's sharing. That is the word is perfect. Uh, that is, it is the ideal, um, um, not the real. So the Bible's always upholding the ideal right. morality, the right. ideal ethic. But then there's a real Right. Uh, and that's what we're living in the here and now. Um, it is unattainable for us on this earth. Only one is good, the mm. Bible says, and that's that's God. Mm. And so the work of the Holy Spirit is a continued work until we die. We understand that. And so we must walk humbly, knowing and battling with our sins and frailties. Mm. So as pastors, we need to be aware of that. Right. Um, and then we are talking about being like God. Think through that just for a bit. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. It's so funny to me. Like whenever I hear pastors talk about this, this section, especially in the West, mm -hmm. they spend the first half of the sermon assuring their congregation, God is not asking you to give up all your money. <laughs> they right. spend like the first half getting all the passages that show that we don't have to give up our money, which is true. Yeah. Right. This was a unique instance. But what was the point of Jesus asking him to give up the money? It was to show or reveal the man's inner greed. Yeah. And I think it would be best like for a pastor to just be like, hey, what if God asked you to give up all your money? I'm not even going to defend the other point for a second. I'm not going to say that God's not at. What if he did? How would that make you feel? Yeah. What would it reveal? What would it reveal in you when it comes to your finances and your prosperity that you've achieved? If God asked you to give it all up for him, would you do it? Yeah, and this is what this is what God's always doing is that he's bringing people that he meets to a place of understanding their need for Messiah. Right. So the 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 main phrase in the the uh, story is what do I still lack? Right. That's the that's the main section. Right is that's the where the thinking's wrong right right what do i still lack and what me and peter are trying to get at is that as pastors we cannot go down that road where we say what do i still lack oh you need this one more act of righteousness right you need to give up this sin you need to stop doing this you need to start doing this right that's that same mentality that there is something else you could add to your resume that would get you right with God. Yeah. Right. And what Jesus is saying is you come to me on the basis of grace or you don't come at all. Yeah. And so a lot of times when you're at the pulpit, you know, you could be sharing, but you could be sharing like that rich young ruler probably did in his own life uh, with this idea in your mind of like, hey, what do I still lack? I'm talking about sexuality right now from the pulpit. But I'm not really looking at my own failures with sexuality um, or maybe how even my current um, actions with sex and sexuality aren't the perfect mm -hmm. and that there's still things that you fail in. Right. And, and so if you're able to do that, then you're able to come at that passage with a much more real and uh uh, with some empathy mm. and sympathy towards your audience, which is going to create a much more um, cohesive 
um, understanding that we all are humans right. and we have a human condition right. that we're needing to deal with. Or to put it <laughs> another way, you could flip this a little bit. If you were to teach this story, what you should say is, what would be the thing that if Jesus asked you to give it up right now, you would have to walk away sullen? Right. Because that exists for all of us. There is something in every single one of our lives that if Jesus said, I want you to stop doing this. I want you to give this up. You'll have treasure in heaven. Stop doing it. Come and follow me. We would all have to walk away from him. Right. Right. Because he's holy. Jesus didn't put anything in his life of saying this is more precious than God. Everything was given to God. But in our lives, there's always something that God is saying, I don't want you to do this. And we do it anyway. Or I want you to give this up and we can't. Right? There is something in our lives, there's always, or multiple things in, in my case and most other people's cases, yeah. that if God asked me to give it up, I just wouldn't be able to do it in the moment. Right? Mm -hmm. It's just not something I have the capacity to do. So here's um, a little section. Let's see if it'll play. God doesn't use stained glass saints. Why? Because they don't exist. God uses regular, faulty, flawed individuals just like you and me. Sometimes get it right, sometimes get it wrong. Okay, so there's an example of what we were talking about, right? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I think he said it's in Zacharias because uh, he's probably going over Zechariah chapter 3, uh, where in Zechariah chapter 3 you have the high priest, Joshua, like the most important person in the nation, the holiest guy of the holiest guy, basically like the, the Pope, essentially, if you want to think of him that way, in the ancient world. And when Zechariah sees him in a vision, he sees him standing before God in filthy rags, and God must remove the rags and give him fresh clothing. So the idea there is even the best of the best still need God's grace, and uh, very important, yeah. And I think it's a good example from the pulpit, too, of just that idea of using we. Mm -hmm. He continue, continually used we, so he didn't separate himself right. from the others. Right. That's where the rich young ruler made the mistake, right? Right. It's like, I've kept, yeah. right when you say I've, <laughs> right. you've kind of separated yourself from those that haven't done this, you right. know? You're making a distinction of yourself right. from other people. Right. Especially such a good example because we're talking about the high priest. Yeah. You know, it's like, why is the high priest the high priest? And from the more ancient perspective, uh, no matter what pagan religion you're looking at, the high priest was the best of the best. It was the like God's avatar on this earth. And even the Jews started to think that way of like, well, yeah, of course I'm the high priest because I'm the best, you know, and God really likes me. You know, like he, he kind of likes you guys, but he really likes me because I am totally holy and perfect and everything like that. Um, but to see it as, no, like God has elected fallen people to accomplish his will. And his election of you to whatever position, whether it's, you know, a deacon of some sort, some sort of a servant within the ministry, or if you're a pastor, an elder of some sort, your election to that level of ministry is not because you're morally perfect, right? Now, there are moral, uh, there are moral requirements to be inside of that office, but that's not why you have the right to serve. Those are requirements to help you understand the necessity of God's law and being an example to the flock and your conduct. But it's not God looking at you and saying, well, now you've reached it, man. 
Like you've hit that requirement. Now you're in. It's no, you still need grace. You still need my grace and my mercy in order for me to use you because you're not perfect and you don't have it all together. And your capacity to lead is not based upon your moral perfection, but it's actually based on the fact that God has seen it fit as Paul says, right? He saw it fit to, put, to make me an apostle, right? right? Put me uh, in the in, in the ministry. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm reading through the Proverbs right now and going or uh, the uh, Ju- Book of Judges and I'm in Samson and just finishing up, up the narrative of Samson, mm-hmm. the mighty man Samson, yeah. and it's great because it's hilarious. It's hilarious in this way. This guy just just goes on a violent tear. <laughs> You know, and it's this is just one of those stories you just got to laugh at. Yeah, <laughs> such he, a funny I mean, he just gets done having sex with some chick and, you know, he's at a party and he's making fun of her, calling her. He a calls heifer. her a heifer, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, and he's, he, you know, he's playing a game with his friends, you know, just because like you plowed riddle. with my heifer. That's what he says to him. <laughs> you know, he's just he's this dude's an absolute wreck. dude. This is the guy from high school. who's just at every party. <laughs> Just getting tanked, but he's a good-looking dude, so all the chicks dig him. You know, he—I mean, he's just that guy. Yeah. He's a bully, you know. <laughs> and it says in there, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And what does the spirit of the Lord do? He picks up a jawbone, which he's not supposed to pick up because he's a Nazarite. <laughs> not supposed to touch carcasses. Not supposed to touch a carcass, and he picks it up and he wrecks a thousand Philistines. It just blows my mind, yeah. dude. The spirit of the Lord comes upon him. I know. And what does he do? Immediately disobeys. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately disobeys. And we don't. We somehow how don't get this, this idea. Right. You know when. We, we think the spirit of the Lord comes upon you. We think moral perfection. Right. And it's interesting. Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Right. What is the first thing he does? Breaks Disobey God's God. law. <laughs> yeah. <he just laughs> immediately breaks God's law. Immediately picks up the donkey, yeah. donkey's jawbone. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, man, what a narrative that right. is in the Bible. Right. I mean, just talk about a mind blower. Right. You know. How does the Spirit of the Lord come on this guy right? Uh, when he is so disobedient? It so, always makes me think of, uh, you know, Ravi Zacharias, and we talk about him a lot. Yeah. Where he had this hidden life where he was basically uh, utilizing his power and authority and position in order to get women into bed with him uh, all over the world. And uh, pretty sick stuff when you when you read some yeah. of the accounts of these women. But the interesting thing to me is, is that there's this great debate about was he saved or was he not? And my answer has always been the same. I don't know. I have no idea what Ravi Zacharias believed. But what I do know is that his behavior isn't a good indicator to me of whether or not he was saved, right? Uh, because it's very possible he was a Samson-like dude who got up and preached and thousands, I mean, when you see Ravi Zacharias go to these places, these massive universities around the world, and he gives these gospel presentations, and hundreds of people are saved at these things, he might have gone home that night and had sex with a masseuse. <laughs> and people are just like, why would God give this guy so much insight, so much wisdom? So much articulation, right? His diction was incredible. His ability to to speak and to woo crowds was amazing. Why would God bless that guy with these amazing gifts when he's using them also 
to do these nefarious things behind the scene. You know, and people struggle with that. People struggle with why does God gift the unrighteous? And the assumption is, is that there is somebody righteous out there, somebody worthy that God could give those abilities to and they would be worthy of them. Mm. And the answer is no, he couldn't. Mm. Right. Obviously, once again, his sins are much worse than other people's in that physical way, that zero to from that perspective of zero. But from the perspective of infinity, no, there is no righteous, no, not one. Mm. So cool. So that was the end of part two, you know, of just learning how to be vulnerable from that pulpit place Mm. and how to kind of practically do it. Right. So we talked about really having to see theology a little different, to see us all as sinners, to see us all as working on sanctification, using we from the pulpit. And we saw some examples there, too. So chapter or part three is about fighting sin versus repressing it. Mm. And this is one of the big ones that you kind of uh, have added to this slideshow. Yeah. Um, Therefore, if you died with Christ um, with from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Quote, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, unquote. Which are all concerned, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Seems really in opposition of holy religion. Yeah, no, it does, Doesn't. and it and it's intended to be so. Uh, Paul is describing kind of the more Greek philosophical view of this virtue called continence, the ability to control yourself. And the idea from the Greeks was you must subdue the flesh, right? So whatever desires you have in the flesh, you have to subdue it. You have to deny yourself these things. Whatever your flesh wants, you say no to. Very stoic discipline. Very stoic in their methodology of just like hey whatever your flesh wants you should just not give it to it. a sound mind is important more important than anything because you need to tell you need your mind to tell the body right no right that the control of the body the subordination of the body through the exercise of the will is how you become a holy and righteous person now paul is throwing sand right into that he's like no that doesn't make you a more holy person It may prevent you from exercising these more noticeable and outward sins, which are destructive and bad for you. However, they're of no use against the indulgence of the flesh as a whole. Why? Because the flesh as a whole is fed by self-righteousness and pride. So if you, in other words, if you stop becoming, if you stop being a whore by becoming a Pharisee, you're no closer to God, right? That's his point. If you are able to exercise your will to dominate your flesh, that's good, but it doesn't mean that you've actually dominated the flesh as a whole. You've just converted the flesh into something different. So we see like the, you know, that folly in the rich young ruler and us as pastors can easily be this, this kind of idea is like, we go, oh, I don't handle, I don't taste, I don't touch. Right. Therefore, you know, I'm doing well. Right. Where you don't realize that, no, there's something more sinister going on, as, you know, the screw tape letters of C.S. Lewis would kind of tell us. And that is there's that sinister self-righteousness that's creeping in. That's right. And I, I love uh, Lewis. I don't know if we quote it in the slideshow, but there's a great C.S. Lewis quote in Mere Christianity where he's talking about the great abominable sin being pride. 
And he said, since pride is the complete anti-God state of mind and is completely satanic, <laughs> which is awesome. That's such a great chapter to read. If you feel great about your righteousness, it'll just flatten you. Right. But, uh, you know, he's like, it's a complete anti-God state of mind. It's completely satanic in its origin. And he says, because of that, it could actually be used to beat up on lesser sins. He says, how many teachers try to convince young men to be chased by saying these things are beneath you or they're gross or they're bad for you? He's like, all of those things appeal to your own flesh, right? They appeal to your pride of making you feel self-righteous or making you feel like you're doing better than other people. He says, the devil laughs with glee when this happens, just as he would be more than happy to let you be cured of a common cold if he was allowed instead to give you cancer, right? So, and he says, pride is spiritual cancer. So by flipping it, that's what Paul's saying. If you combat your sinful licentious self-indulgence, whether it's sexual or something like that, by utilizing pride, you haven't actually become a better person. You've just become a different type of sinner, right? So it's changed the category, but it hasn't changed the man, right? Mm -hmm. It hasn't transformed you in any meaningful way. That's right. So that's what we're talking about in this one, fighting sin versus repressing it. That's right. So, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, the, the first bullet is not praying with the opposite sex. So the example here is certain churches have placed on themselves restrictions over the fear of self-indulgence. So the idea is we don't want our elders to be tempted or our leadership to be tempted to engage in illicit sexual activity. So therefore, it's better if the men and women just don't have any contact with one another. Now, the idea there is that's a do not touch kind of methodology of, you have sinful lust within your heart. The way that you overcome that sinful lust is by putting up distance between you and your flesh. So just don't touch the opposite sex and you won't be tempted. Uh, Islam teaches this way. This is why women wear the hijab. They wear those burqas and basically sacks that they walk around in. So the idea is that the lust of men is not the problem. It is the sensuality of the female form that elicits lust. So if we get rid of the sensuality of the female form, lust has nowhere to go and therefore you have dominated it. What Paul is saying is that you haven't dominated it, you've just changed it, right? It's become something different and it's still lying there dormant. So if my solution is, well, there, there are elders here who struggle with sexual lust, so therefore let's just not touch. Well, you haven't really done anything with the heart you've done something with the physical indulgence, but you haven't done anything with the heart, and therefore you haven't actually changed that person. Shouldn't the goal be, in other words, and this is what Paul gets at in the next chapter, where he talks about reformation through the indwelling of the Spirit. He says, shouldn't the goal be that a pastor, a male pastor, would be able to pray with a female, no matter how attractive she is, and to not lust after her, or better yet, to experience the temptation of lust and to be able to combat it in a useful way. Right. To say like, okay, well, I feel sexually attracted to this woman, but maybe that means I need to work on that perspective and see her as a sister in Christ to be able to pray for her and to be able to fight that indulgence that exists within my flesh, right? And this is the difference. That's why we entitled it uh, Fighting Your Flesh Versus Repressing It. Repression means that you're denying something exists as a category. Fighting means you're acknowledging that it exists, and therefore you're doing whatever you can in order to fight its indulgence. So it's the pastor saying, 
it's instead of the pastor, people go the other way and they're like, well, we're better than that. You know, like we don't lust that way. So yeah, I, you know, I counsel women and they, they come in and we hug and we do this. It's like, well, that's stupid too, because you're still repressing. You're still not acknowledging that the lust does exist in you and that there does need to be steps taken in order to fight or combat the lust. Right. So that's why it's important to have accountability within a church staff so that we are communicating about these things. We need to be able to have balances and lines and boundaries for all of us of what is okay to do with females and what's not okay. Why is that okay and not this okay? And is there a difference between pastors and their own temptations? Yeah, and you can see how important it is for pastors to be able to talk uh, openly about, hey, yeah, there's temptation, but this is how I'm handling that temptation, or right. this is how I'm doing it, right. instead of just repressing it and just saying, oh, I'm never, I don't right. ever have the I issue. never think that I way. I never think that <laughs> way. And then there's that other idea uh, with this is where pastors go, oh, yeah, we have something set up where, you know, the male pastors don't ever pray with females, you know, or they don't give hugs to females in the church, because, you know, we don't want them to, you know, have uh, any kind of sexual thing. And it always is it always is 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 spoken of or articulated in a way that puts that that burden of guilt on the, the woman. Yeah. As you said. So, hey, you know, they have to wear the hijab. They got to put on the sack, you know, that because it's their issue. Right. Instead of and, and thing is, that's where self right. That's the evil. It, mm. That's the evil. Right. So when we say, oh, yeah, this is our pastors don't uh, hug women or our pastors don't pray. The right thing to do is to say the reason why is because our male pastors sexually lust after them mm -hmm. and they don't know quite how to um, deal with that properly in a godly way. Right. And so because they can't seem to deal with that in a godly way, we're just asking that they don't hug women or they don't pray with women. Right. Now that would be right. <laughs> That'd be right on. <laughs> that be would like, be right on. Good on you. See, that way you're explaining to people that the the burden of guilt is actually on the leader. Right. It's not on the person that needs prayer. Right. So how many churches do that? How many churches say, hey, by the way, we don't have males pray with females, but the reason why is because they sexually lust and they don't know how to deal with their lust. And so we just avoid that. Right. You know, that would be honest, but I don't think that happens often. Right. I think instead it's placed. There's a self-righteousness. There's a, a thing of, oh, we're walking holy. Right. Uh, you know, that kind of idea. And that's that's the sin hmm. that is so. um sneaky right you know where pretty soon you're developing in the congregation that rich young ruler idea right of like we are doing things really holy well no you're not right you're just you, your holiness or your what you're calling holiness is really just a a law-based you know pride right you know that self-imposed self-imposed religion you know, so that's what we're trying to deal with. So right. that, that's an example of how this creeps into the churches. Right. Right. I remember uh, at youth camp, you know, and, and there's a lot of cool leaders that go to youth camp. But there was this uh, thing that was put out while I was there the first time where they were telling girls what was appropriate bathing suits, you know, which is which is kind of funny, you know, because some of them you, you can understand. But a lot of them was like 
you know, it's got to be one piece. It can't be showing anything. Da 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 da. And it was it was basically essentially against or around any type of uh, fashion of the day, right? What was allowed. Mm-hmm. And I commented. I it was like, well, I noticed that there's no recommendations for men, right? So you don't have any type of modesty recommendations for males. You only have it for females. Why is that, right? And they couldn't, they couldn't really give me a good answer. But the assumption is, number one, kind of like what you're saying, women don't really lust the way that men do. You know, they just don't lust after the male form, uh, which is garbage and, and a lie. But the second thing, the, the insinuation is, once again, the, the problem is with the female body. It's not with the lust of the men. So, again, it, it would have been a better articulation to say, like, well, you know, I just assume, and, you know, and me as well, I don't have the capacity, I don't have the wherewithal to fight off the lust that exists in my heart. So if a woman walks around in a bikini, I'm just such a lustful fallen (laughs) guy, I'm just going to fantasize about her and I'm going to want to treat her inappropriately. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's honest. That'd be be awesome at a youth camp if they they said something like, 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 how many of you guys cannot think at this camp because of those women are wearing those two pieces? Yeah. (laughs) You know, and they got that honest. Everybody's like, oh, man, that's right. I can't think about the Bible. All I'm thinking about is the two-piece bikini. It's the two-piece bikini, man, which is hilarious. But But it, it never goes like that. Yeah, it never goes that way. And it always, like I said, goes back to the woman. And once again, it's like the problem isn't the woman. The problem is me. And unless I'm working on me and saying, you know, like, what's wrong with me that I can't see someone wearing something like she's not naked. She's not walking around naked. She's just beautiful. She's just a very attractive female. What's wrong with me that I can't look at her beauty and not lust after it yeah right why can't i do that and that again puts the fight back in my camp of i need to fight that i need to work on that right as opposed to just saying well it's it's her yeah and 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 it shows a problem in our in our the way that resisting sin is something we do not like to engage in Mm. you know uh we don't not for some reason even as leaders we would rather walk more in a self-righteous way than really deal with the the daily resistance that we need and admitting that we have that we're de- we, we are fighting mm-hmm. and you know when we hear the word struggle people go i don't like the word struggle you know well well why yeah. like when you wrestle with someone isn't it a struggle yeah like you know but a lot of people don't want to hit the mat yeah. you know they don't want to get in the ring Kind of reminds me of, you know, know, high school. It's so high school. Yeah. Because it's like girls, they would never admit that they wear perfume. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I just smell this way. You know, right. <laughs> they wouldn't admit they, wouldn't admit they wear makeup <laughs> or anything like that. It's just like, oh, no, I just, I just, I remember uh, when I was in high school, they were, social media was starting to come up. And uh, later on, when I went into the Marines, filters started to come up on cameras where people can filter. And there was this hashtag that kept going around that girls would put hashtag no filter. So the idea is I, I just woke up this way, you know, just so it's like, no, you didn't. But there's this idea of what did that girl really have to do in order to look that way? She put a lot of work into it. You know, she had to adorn herself. She had to put on makeup in a very particular way. She had to fix her hair in a particular way. She had to get in the right kind of lighting. She had to take the picture. But she can't admit that because she has to claim that she just has a natural perfection to her right she just is that way you know guys do this all the time too 
where they're just like, oh yeah, no, like I, I don't really work out very much. But it's like, yeah, no, you do. You're, you're at the gym all the time. Like, no, I just kind of naturally, you know, this I is just bug. do a hundred pushups. Yeah, <laughs> I just kind of think about fitness, and it yeah. just kind of fits into my life, you know. Uh, but it's like guys do that too, where they they pretend as though they don't have to work for what they have, mm. uh, and it's like that kind of illusion is really foolish, right? That kind of illusion is very foolish, where there's nothing wrong with acknowledging faults and working through them. Yeah. But the the thought, the ideal of being, no, you should just naturally be good looking. I mean, why do you think kids get picked on that have braces? You know, the, what's the idea there? That your teeth should just be naturally perfect. You know, you shouldn't have to straighten them in any particular way. Right. They just, you should just come out of the womb with like perfect chompers, you know, without any issues whatsoever. Or like kids who have to use acne cream or something like that. What's the assumption that you should just, if you were really cool, you wouldn't have any acne. You would just be perfect. Your skin would just be flawless, right? That's how it is. And it's the idea of like, no, it, what's better? Is it just naturally having perfect flesh or perfect skin or understanding the imperfections and working on them? Mm. Uh, so that same high school mentality has crept into the church where people are like, oh, I just kind of, I just don't think that way. It's like, okay, well, it doesn't make you a better person, (laughs) you know, like maybe you don't, you know, maybe you don't, but it does make you a better person. There are areas that you do think in negative ways. Yeah. So another example is rules for dating. Um, (laughs) We must put up these specific boundaries because if we don't, we will have sex before marriage and then God won't bless our marriage. There's a lot in that one. (laughs) one. So (laughs) the first part is we have to put up. So, you know, you probably hear these in church. You shouldn't kiss before your wedding day. Um, you should never be alone with your partner before your wedding day. You should always have accountability. You should uh, never be in an environment where you might fall, like, so don't drive together, don't park together, don't do anything like that, right? So there are all these rules. Some of them are wise, and that's what Paul says. They are. They have an appearance of wisdom, right? So he's not throwing it out. He's not saying those, these are all stupid. He's just saying they do appear wise, but they don't get to the heart, right? Because they're not admitting the reality. So if someone says to me, right, which people did say to me, you can't you can't hug your wife and like, you know, when we were dating, you can't hug her full frontal, you know, like, you that's can't what do I that. said. Right. That's what Bo told me. He's like, Peter, don't be hugging her. You can't touch her. You know, <laughs> don't you can't even, even look, look at, at her. her, you know, like make sure she's wearing a burqa. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to even think that way. No, like so they, they would tell me, hey, you know, you, you just can't kiss. You can't do that. You know, me and me and her, we went to camp. I think we were engaged and we were at camp. And they said, you can't hold hands, you, know, you can't hug, you can't kiss, you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's pretty radical. And again, like it would be one thing if someone said, you know, you know why I think that's a good idea? Because I have such a weak constitution that when I was dating, if I did any of these things, I would have had sex with my wife. You know, I would have had sex with her before we got married. I just struggle so much with self-control that I know if I even did a little bit, I would go all the way. That, again, is respectable. It's kind of like the person recovering from alcohol who yeah. says, I can't even drink one drink of that. You know, I can't even have one beer because I will go too far if I do that. I know my own limitations when it comes to my flesh. I'm just not going to do that. That is wise. That is good for that person. What's foolish is to assume that everybody is just as weak as you, right? That's that's not true. So me and my wife, yeah, we did we did kiss before we got married. And we didn't have sex. You know? So it is it is possible to do that. But you got to know your limitations of what you can and can't do without going too far. Yeah. And that requires fighting and it requires a lot of conscious self-consciousness. So, again, it, it talk it's, it's about individual honesty. Right. So instead of just 
imposing this kind of uh, religious law mm. uh, on the masses, you know, as a leader, but that we we come and say, hey, this is why I think this is a wise law, and it was wise for me. Right. Uh, um, um, but it's the reason why it was wise for me, you're saying, is we have to be able to share because this is where I my temptation I know would have led me. Right. And this is where I am weak. Right. You know, and and so I set up these boundaries for yeah. me. Um, but don't think I'm great. Right. Think I am weak. Weak. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. Once again, just like the alcoholic. He's not saying, I do this because I'm strong, man. I'm better than all of you. That's why I don't have that beer. No, it's my my sobriety hinges on me having these boundaries in my life, right? I'm, I'm weaker than you right. when it comes to the substance. And that's what we would love to see from pastors more, right? Right. right. Is that idea is that when you share, people realize that you are weak, right? Right. Right. And that this is why things are implemented the way they are. And, and that I put that at the end, the idea, God won't bless your marriage, because I just hate it when people say that. Right. God won't bless your marriage. So what what do we mean by that as Christians versus what we don't? I think what some people think we mean, uh, and this is, by the way, both the Christians that say it out loud as well as the Christians that listen to it, they think we mean that if you wait until marriage, God will supernaturally give you this <laughs> incredible, loving, amazing marriage in which everything works out great. Till death do you part. Till death do you part. And me and you, we, we read an article on one of our podcasts, I think it was like a year or two ago, uh, where a girl waited till marriage and then... That was hilarious. That was a good article. I can't remember what it was called. Yeah. But yeah, she, she waited till marriage for her husband and just like, that was the worst mistake of my life. We had we ended up getting married. We had no sexual chemistry, totally fell apart, right? But you had this idea of if you wait, if you wait, God is just going to supernaturally make your marriage do amazing things. That's just not true. What we could mean is that the things that you implement, if you learn how to control your flesh and your sexual urges during your dating relationship, if you learn how to honor God's word through implementing this type of battle, those lessons that you learn by doing that can be of great effect within your marriage, for sure. But if you fail to fulfill God's sexual commandments and ethics before marriage, it doesn't guarantee your marriage is going to suck. As long as are you learning from those things? Are you learning from the falls? Are you learning how to do better next time? Are you implementing different strategies? Because sex in and of itself is not a bad thing. And you have to understand also that when you go through the Bible in the Old Testament, when it comes to sexual misconduct throughout the Bible, there are different punishments for different sexual misconducts. Most of them are the death penalty. This is the only one, sex before marriage is the only sexual misconduct in the Old Testament that wasn't punished by death. The punishment was you had to pay the dad the dowry. So you had to give the dad basically a blank check and be like, you know, I'm sorry, sir. I I kind of took your daughter's virginity. Here's the money I would have paid you if I were to marry her in a right context. Right. Here's half a million dollars. That's right. And then the dad got to decide at that point whether to be like, you're a bum. Stay away from me, my family. Don't you ever touch my daughter again or I'll kill you. Or he could be like, welcome to the family. You know, you blew it, but that's okay. I like you. Come on in. You can marry my daughter. But that marriage is the only kind of marriage in the Israeli law that could never be divorced. 
right? So you better be dang sure that that's the girl you want to be with for the rest of your life before you do something with her. But I like that because it's the idea of it's not the sex before marriage that just destroys your capacity to be married. If that was the case, the law would say you guys can't be married. You have sex before marriage, you shouldn't be married because God's not going to bless it. Nope, no blessing. That's right. God, <laughs> that would be the law if that was what God thought, but that's not it. Yeah, and that's, once, it's so, that, that's just ridiculous. Absolutely. Once again, it's that rich young ruler mentality. Yeah. If you do the right thing, God will do right by you. He'll just bless you supernaturally. And that's just not true. We all fail in many different ways. So it's like, did I actually have sex with my wife before marriage? No. But did we perfectly keep God's ethical standard for sexual conduct during our dating relationship? Meaning I didn't even fantasize about it. I didn't even lust after her. I didn't have to implement these boundaries because I am so weak that I would have done it, you know, if I, if I didn't have this. But no. Right. So I didn't perfectly fulfill God's ethical command before marriage. I struggled. I battled with it. And that's just something that I have to admit. Otherwise, again, you put out these airs of like, well, we did it the right way. Yeah. You know, we did it the right way, man. And that's why our marriage is so rock solid. You know? awesome. So our last uh, example is women's clothing cause men to lust, which we, we touched about. about. If women don't dress in particular ways, it will cause their Christian brothers to lust again instead of not being honest. Right. Right. So really, that that's the first thing that we're trying to deal with is instead of just uh, repressing things to really admit as leaders that we uh, that the things that are implemented in our church mm. um, are implemented because of our failures right. and of difficulties that we have, right. you know, in our life and that we as as leaders and elders, we need to step up and be honest with those those weaknesses, which, you know, and this is interesting because you and I have talked about this before. But it's just kind of I've been thinking about it. I believe not solely, but I think it has a huge role to play in the current sexual dynamics in our culture, because the communication, the idea that I just don't struggle with these things promoted the idea that if I do, that constitutes an identity shift. So in other words, how many Christians can admit that they struggle with same sex attraction? That have been right. like, yep, I do. I, every now and then I do think about men in a sexual way. It's wrong. I fight against it. How many Christians admit it? Pretty much none. So we created a culture in which nobody could even admit that they struggle in a particular way. And then that slowly made it into the idea of if you struggle that way, that's because that's what you are. right? So the idea was you are gay if you struggle with same-sex attraction. Therefore, we're going to persecute you. And then that idea then constituted the new idea, which is, no, you're born this way. You're born in this sexual identity. You discover it later on in your life. And then people who try to stop you from doing it are repressing your true self and therefore causing you harm, right? So you see how that evolution of ideology was yeah. formed in this kind of over-legalistic Christianity. Yeah, and there's no doubt that that, you know, my own personal belief is that the— you know, LGBTQ culture and, you know, its sexual philosophies have all come out of, you know, a church culture. Right. Um, many of these founders of LGBTQ right. and, and sexual education uh, have all come from right. religious backgrounds. Right. 
you know, mostly Christian um, or Jewish religious backgrounds. Right. And, 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 and so, you know, you have to look at that and you have to ask why, right. You know, what is the issue? Right. You know, we've done many podcasts on, on that and we can maybe tackle that some more in some future ones as well. But there, this is a reaction. It's a philosophical reaction, Mm. which also has with it, carries with it a philosophical shift. Right. In thinking. Right. You know, and it's trying to answer questions. Right. It's trying to remedy uh, issues. Right. You know, of and when you when you when you repress and you just continually repress, it creates cognitive dissonances within human beings. Right. And human beings have to work that cognitive dissonance out somehow. Right. And it's either there. It's either through incredible depression Mm-hmm. Uh, where they kind of just are in a confinement of their depression and melancholy forever because mm. they can't achieve what has been they've been how they've been educated in a religious system uh, and they're not able to talk through it or think through it and uh, they think something is innately wrong with them and so they're shamed and they feel guilt-ridden and all those things like that or you know they have to somehow deal with that cognitive dissonance in a different way. And that is through rethinking and finding a group that's going to help them reshape, right. You know, their, their ideology. And that's the idea of like, if you ever hear it, because it's said all the time, how could a just and holy God punish someone for making them a certain way? So the idea is once again, that God just, you're just formed gay. Yeah. And then God says, how dare you be gay? Right. That's the idea. Where the I, what we're saying is that no men is man is born in iniquity Psalm 139 we're all bent and warped yeah. in our sexuality but how how would anybody from LGBTQ culture believe that mm-hmm. in a Christian evangelical way if none of the right. evangelical leaders and pastors are able to say hey by the way. I find Thor very attractive, right? You know, and I, I, you know, I, I have tendency to think sexually about that guy, right? You know, see, if you if you never say that and you never admit it and you always talk about being gay or whatever in a like I would never be that, what do I still lack? Right. You know, I've done all these things since uh, my youth. You start sounding like the rich young right. ruler, right? <laughs> you do. Like, I don't sound, I've never done that. Right. I've never done that. Ew. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you, since my youth, I've never thought that way. Right. I've never been that way. Well, it was radical you know? to me, uh, you know, when I started doing, especially the peer to groups at the U of A campus, it was really radical to me how many guys admitted to experimenting with other men absolutely in college yeah i found that as well i was like whoa like that's that's kind of radical like i i wasn't expecting that kind of reaction from them but there was an awful lot and the more i do the group even on tuesdays there are so many men who they usually tell me one-on-one they almost never tell it to the group but they'll pull me aside and be like yeah you know sometimes i'll watch i'll watch porn with men i'm like well yeah i think most people watch porn with men. No, no 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 like porn with only men you know like yeah. and i'm like oh okay you mean you mean same sex porn and they're like yeah you know and mm-hmm. and they're they're straight meaning they're married they're attracted to their wives they love their wives but there's something in them that pulls that way right yeah. they're curious about it 
So they, they have to fight against it. But you, that's the difference between repression and fighting. Fighting acknowledges that something does exist in you, but it needs to be fought. Like it doesn't, it can't be indulged. It shouldn't be indulged. Repression says it's not there. I don't have those thoughts. That doesn't exist in me. I've never thought that way. No way. You know, yeah. like that's and the that's, idea. And that's more of why the culture is the way it is. Mm-hmm. You know, the sexual, you know, culture the way it is. Mm-hmm. It's it's because, you know, there hasn't been many people that's been able to share openly. Right. You know, with these things. So they have to find new answers. And some of them are wrong answers, like God has made me this way. Mm-hmm. But that is an answer, nonetheless, right. Right. to their cognitive dissonance, mm-hmm. you know, that gives them some kind of peace, like, oh, okay, you know, so they, they can deal with their reality mm-hmm. or their, their passions, mm-hmm. um, you know. So anyway, we'll end there. I hope you guys got some of that. Everybody kind of learned a little something about that. It might have been a hard one for some leaders, you know, for sure. But, um, you know, hey, think through it a little bit, okay? <laughs> we'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Check out runninglight.org to begin our two video series, Take Flight and Love or Lust. You can also send us questions on Twitter at Running Light or on our runninglight.org podcast page. Like us on Facebook at Running Light Ministries, Psalm 36, 8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures.